Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Yes, we're still in a pandemic, but for some, it's a time of a dual epidemic for people affected by alcohol or drug addiction. NPR reported the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned last month that the pandemic may have contributed to a rise in deadly drug overdoses. Today, where we live, we talk to people in recovery. What's it like navigating addiction in a pandemic when community programs to help people must rely on less face-to-face interaction because of COVID-19? Coming up, we also hear from a member of Naranon, which helps family members and friends of people in recovery. And we talk with a woman who works for a treatment center in Connecticut. Are you or someone you know in the recovery community? What has it been like these last several months? We want to hear from you this hour. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest is in recovery after struggling with addiction to powder and crack cocaine. Vic Vela's six-year sobriety anniversary was just yesterday. He hosts the podcast, Back From Broken, from Colorado Public Radio. Vic, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me, Lucy. Good morning. I saw your sobriety anniversary tweet uh, just the other day. How did people respond to you when you sent that out? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, too oftentimes people talk about Twitter being this awful place, you know, and uh, and it can be a negative place, but it could also be a very moving and and loving place. And uh, I mean, the replies, the text messages, the, the DMs, uh, and anytime I post something like that, it's, it's, it's not so much for me, although I am proud of what I accomplished, it's just to kind of let others know that you can do it and that hope is possible. And so uh, oftentimes I'll get really personal messages from people. They'll say, congratulations on your sobriety. Uh, my son just went into a treatment program or my wife struggled with alcohol and she's now two years sober. I mean, it's beautiful, total strangers communicating that way. And I think that's just beautiful. So tell us about uh, your story, Vic. Uh, I wanted to ask first, uh, how old were you when your addiction started? Well, you know, I think like a lot of people, you know, I, I started drinking and doing some, you know, uh, smoking weed and, and uh, taking um, LSD and mushrooms when I was in high school you know, following uh, members of the Grateful Dead and fish and things like that. Um, But every person who becomes addicted to drugs remembers a time when uh, the drugs didn't cause a problem and you could actually function. Uh, And for me, that was that was college where I uh, I successful, you know, I got good grades. I did internships and uh, but still went out to the bars and did all that stuff. It really wasn't until my first job out of college, which was as a sports anchor. 
And uh, that's when I really fell in love with with cocaine. Uh, and, it, and it began as kind of a weekend thing. And then it became uh, an everyday thing pretty soon. And pretty soon I'm not going on uh, on the air without it, you know. So I'll go into the makeup room, put on my, adjust my tie, uh, put on my makeup and, and do a few rails of cocaine off the sink and go on the air. Uh, and no one was none the wiser. I mean, I did that uh, nightly. You would uh, become get laid off from that job in Texas, so you went back to Colorado, but your cocaine habit stayed with you. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> anyone who's listening who's ever been addicted and who's in recovery understands what, you know, the, the geographic change. We've all tried that. We've all tried that geographic change. Like, well, if I just move to Missouri, uh, everything will be okay, right? Like as if there's no drugs in Missouri. Uh, and, and it's just, that's part of the madness of addiction. Um, but I did move back to Colorado thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's a good chance to time out and, and whatever. Uh, but as soon as I got there, you know, I looked for a dealer before I even looked for a job and, and that it, it, our priorities when we are addicted to drugs, that that's just what it is. Like, it, and, and there's no thought process behind it. It's kind of like when, when you wake up and maybe brush your teeth in the morning, me uh, doing cocaine is just what I'm going to do. Uh, there's no thought about it. So the cycle continued. You kept doing cocaine. You were high at work. How did your second place of employment respond? Um, not well. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, you know, at that time, it, it, the drug and the addiction was progressing in that it was it was seriously impacting my personality and, and my behavior and my sleep cycle. So I hosted a morning show for that second job. Um, and oftentimes, you know, as as you know, as you may know, when you had to host something in the morning, you got to get up really early. And oftentimes I just wouldn't go to bed. Uh, I would stay up all night drinking and doing cocaine and then just show up to the newsroom uh, hosting the show. And then as soon as it was over, uh, I would just go home and crash the rest of the day, even though I still had other work to do. Um, and, you know, I'd be barking at producers and, and really irritable. And, and finally they said, you know, we well, we need more from you. And, uh, and and I couldn't do it at that time. So, I mean, there is there's so now, as you're correctly pointing out early in my life, I'm still in my 20s at this point, mid 20s. Uh, the the my drug use is consuming me uh, in ways where there are now consequences, like I'm losing my livelihood uh, because of it. When I was listening to one of your episodes back from Broken Again, Vic Vela, who hosts uh, that podcast with me here on Where We Live, you said cocaine was my master, so much so that when you had a run-in with your drug dealer, it was something that wasn't a breaking point for you. I know. Yeah. And what you're refer referring to there, I owed him a lot of money. And see, we had an agreement where um, he would front me large quantities of cocaine. Um, and the idea was that I would uh, take that, uh, sell it, you know, to friends or people who, who, who wanted little bags of coke. And um, I would make a profit. And not only would I make a profit, I'd be paying for my own habit. And it's like, that's brilliant. <laughs> in theory, that sounds great. On paper, that sounds great, of course. Uh, but of course, in reality, what happened was 
uh, I ended up doing my own product. <laughs> so I was, after all, I am addicted to cocaine. So I would, uh, uh, you know, but by the time uh, the 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 pile of, of coke was was gone, I owed this guy several hundreds of dollars, and I was ignoring his phone calls, and he was threatening me over the phone. Long story short, I I my my. A boyfriend at the time convinced his uncle to loan us some money. So, so I showed up at my dealer's door, uh, apologizing. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was ignoring your calls and, and he let me in. And as soon as he shut the door behind me, I just felt this, you know, fist to the back of my head. And, and what happened then was he started beating me up. He was beating me, he was kicking me and, you know, I'm just like bruised and bloodied. And then he stood over me uh, uh, with a barrel of a gun. Um, he was holding a gun as I'm laying there, you know, scared on the floor. And he's just calling me every name in the book saying, you know, don't ever, don't, you know, I'm not going to use the words he used, but that don't ever, uh, you know, uh, dodge my calls again, you know, next time I'll kill you. Um, and, you know, he, after the moment passed, he put his gun away, you know, he said, okay, no hard feelings. He counted my cash. And as he's counting my cash and as I'm getting up, I, most people would have just walked out the door and never seen that guy again. Right. But I stood up and I said, so can you front me more drugs? That's the insanity of addiction. I literally just got beat up and I literally just had a gun pointed to my head. And I still want cocaine. So when did you start to take it serious that you needed treatment, Vic? It took a long time. And I think that's something a lot of people can relate to who's ever had uh, struggles with substance use disorder or um, really any, any struggle. Um, you know, over the years, I would kind of make, you know, take half measures, you know, um, I even went to a rehab center for, for 28 days, but I wasn't ready to get sober. So I got high the, the day I got out. Um, you know, uh, you can put a treatment center on every corner of the block, but if unless you're ready, unless you're willing to, to get help, it's not gonna do any good. And that's what happened in my case for a long time. I knew I had a problem. I just didn't do anything about it. Um, and then there's consequences, like I mentioned, not just job loss. Um, uh, I was ruining relationships, burning bridges with relationships. I was in financial dire straits because cocaine, you know, was breaking news, cocaine is expensive. And, um, you know, and so I'm going bankrupt. Um, and there's health consequences too, uh, Lucy, in my case. Um, you know, I was not... Uh, in the in the summer of 2006, I was just I was really sick all the time, and uh, I didn't know what was going on. I felt like I had the flu in the middle of summer, and um, doctors didn't know what was going on until one day one of my doctors just asked me. He said, you know, he knew my history with drugs, and and uh, you know I'm a gay man as well, and he said, uh, you know, when's the last time you got tested for HIV? And as soon as he asked the question, I knew that that's what was going on. And and when they do the blood work, that you know they measure a couple of things. One, they me measure the uh, the viral load, you know, which measures the presence of the virus in your body, and uh, your T cell count, uh, which is your immune system. And 
the viral load was through the roof and my T cell count was almost nearly depleted. I was what you would call borderline AIDS and no wonder why I was so sick. And so, you know, but even that didn't stop me, right? I, I took my medicine for HIV, but I kept using and it really wasn't until uh, 2015 when I just, I had enough. I, um, you know, the, the cocaine use progressed for me snorting cocaine for many, many years and to the point where I, I did damage to my nose and I couldn't physically snort the drug anymore. So I started smoking crack. And um, I did that for the last couple of years. I covered the state capitol here in Colorado. So I'm outside smoking crack behind a dumpster and then going inside and interviewing the governor. All right. Um, and that's the problem, too. You, you, you point to things in your life that are going well. And so therefore, you can't have a problem, right? Like, uh, I, well, I may be smoking crack behind a dumpster, but I just interviewed the governor. Not many people can do that, right? It's a, the, the, the thought process that goes on when you're really suffering is, is really, um, is really horrendous. Um, yeah, you mentioned, so, so you mentioned 2015, Vic, there was that moment in 2015, you're sitting uh, in your bedroom, you're listening to music and you've reached that breaking point. Finally, who did you call? It was this guy who I made a previous attempt to get sober. He was my initial sponsor and uh, that previous attempt didn't last very long, but I still had, had his number and I was scrolling through my phone. I'm crying on my floor and I came across his number and I thought it's like three in the morning. I haven't slept in days. I'm broke. I just smoked my last crack rock. I said, I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to give this guy a call. And mind you, he could have, you know, deleted my number. He could be asleep, any number of things. But so when I called, he answered and the first words out of his mouth were, Hey Vic, how's it going? And I just lost it. I, I was crying and I said, Hey, can you take me to a meeting in the morning? And um, that was the last time I got high. Mm. I started the conversation, uh, Vic, mentioning your sobriety anniversary just yesterday, six years uh, sober. But I wanted to bring that up because for people who are not familiar with addiction, it's not like a, a switch gets flipped and you're immediately better and you don't have to worry anymore about um, relapsing. Can you describe this journey, yeah. this six-year journey from that, that, that night that you decided enough was enough? You know, it's that old cliche of one day at a time, but it's so true. Like I, I wouldn't have six years of sobriety if I didn't take my sobriety and recovery one day at a time. And I think that's, that's what happens with a lot of folks who, um, who, who early in recovery, who relapse, they keep thinking too far ahead in the future. Like, Oh, how can I possibly stay sober for a month? Or how can I possibly stay sober with the Super Bowl party coming up or, or, or the, you know, my friend's wedding, like we, we keep thinking we, we're putting all these barriers ahead of us that are in the, in the future. Uh, when I just stopped doing that and just, and just literally decided I'm just going to be sober today. That's it. That's all I had to worry about. It, it was like the weight of the world lifted. I that. Okay. I think I can do that. I can say sober today. And as you put it, yeah, six years is a long time, but there's a reason why I never say I'm recovered in past tense. I say I'm in recovery or I'm recovering because it's a process that never ends. 
just uh, a couple weeks ago, um, I was struggling. It, you know, it was right around the time of the Capitol riots. Um, it, it wasn't because of the Capitol riots, but that didn't make things any better. <laughs> there were some personal things that I that I messed up and I was beating myself up over. And I had a tough time, but I had to use my recovery playbook, called my sponsor and talked to friends and talked it out. And I stayed sober. Um, it's You're right. It's not something that, you know, you, you're sober. Okay, all my problems go away. But now you have to live life on life's terms without the um, luxury, if you will, of self-medicating that we did for so long. I self-medicated for so long. Well, now I got to deal with uh, traffic like everyone else does. And now I got to deal with dating like everyone else does, but I can't get high. You're hearing Vic Vela here on Where We Live. He hosts the podcast Back From Broken. It focuses on stories of recovery and comeback uh, stories of people who have struggled with addiction. And that's from Colorado Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk about what it's like uh, to be in recovery during the pandemic. We're going to hear from a family member about services available to the recovery community. And we'll hear from a woman who works for a Connecticut treatment center. We want to hear from you, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today on Zoom, Vic Vela, who is six years in recovery. He has a podcast, Back From Broken, as we talk about what it's like to navigate addiction and recovery, especially in the pandemic. So Vic, what have you been hearing from people you've interviewed and what has it been like for you when we think about recovery, having that in-person support versus a lot of phone calls and Zoom? What's it been like? Yeah, that's a really good question and an important one too. You know, I think what a lot of people in recovery are missing is that uh, person-to-person connection. So like if you've ever been to a recovery meeting, you know, you greet everyone, you give a hug, you know, you gather around in a circle and, and they pass out uh, chips. Uh, so-and-so has uh, 30 days sober and everyone claps and everyone gives them a hug uh, and then you gather around, you know, in a circle and say a prayer and, and, and then you bond and have coffee. You can't really do those kinds of things in Zoom because it's just all in front of a camera, right? In, 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 in a computer. And it's terrific that the Zoom meetings are available and, and thank goodness that they are. Uh, but that, that nothing can replace a hug, right? And I think that's one of the things that, that's really missing when it comes to um, uh, the recovery community right now. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna lie, a lot of people are struggling uh, through this pandemic. And, you know, not only are we dealing with the pandemic the same way that you are, which is a lot of pain, a lot of seeing a lot of suffering, maybe someone close to you, uh, you know, was lost, but we're having to stay sober. And, and so it, it's, a, it's quite, a, quite a task. And there's, there are some people who aren't doing well and some people uh, who are. I, I, you know, 
it's a little both for me, you know, I, there's things that I really miss doing, like going in the, the things you don't think about, like I would go play basketball all the time. And that may sound trivial, but moving and exercise and, and, and sports was one of the things I did when I stopped using drugs and it helps me in my recovery. And so when you take that away from people, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough. You know, during this pandemic, we've heard uh, from different people and organizations that, you know, this is the moment for telehealth and this is a way that mm -hmm. we can connect with people. But if you're someone in recovery, that's not such a great thing. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, not, no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't go that far because thank goodness telehealth is there. Thank goodness uh, for the Zoom meetings and for the teletherapy and for uh, technology. Thank goodness for modern te technology allowing us to stay connected. Um, you know, I would imagine this would have been a lot harder in, in the 60s, 70s or 80s when we, you know, when there was no internet, right? There was no uh, communication mechanism. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for reasons to stay grateful. And what I tell my friends who are suffering is, is don't look at COVID, don't look at this pandemic as a barrier, if you will, try and look at it as an opportunity and I mean that in that you're home now more than ever, try meditating. You, you know, how many times you would say, well, I would meditate if I had, if I wasn't so busy, if I didn't have the time for it. Well, now you do, you're home all day. Um, now you can, and, and there, so while there are painful stories of people who are struggling right now, and, and my heart is with them, there are success stories. I've been um, uh, shepherding, if you will, uh, a, a few friends who decided to get sober during the pandemic. And it's wonderful hearing their progress. So if you are struggling out there, you know, don't let the fact that you can't physically go see someone be a barrier. There are resources available right now uh, where you can get help and, and, and it, it can really be there for you. But is it concerning as well, Vic, when we think about so many people in isolation, uh, when a person may accidentally overdose, that they're alone, that there's nobody there to help them? Yeah, and that's happened. I, I think, you know, um, Google any news story and, and look up overdoses and, and pretty much everywhere, you know, they've gone up during the pandemic. And, um, you know, uh, uh, medical advances, uh, you know, have allowed people to bring bring others back from the brink, if you will, with medicine, uh, you know, like Narcan. Mm -hmm. But if no one's there to do it, well, you know, that person could be a goner. And um, yeah, and I think that the, you know, in my case, when cocaine is is usually a a social drug, or you do a bunch of cocaine, you go dance with your friends and stay up all night and talk. But as the addiction progressed, I became more isolated in my use. And so instead of being social, I would shut off my phone, close the, the curtains, you know, close myself off to the world and get high alone. And so uh, for me, oftentimes my default setting is when I think of isolation, I think of getting high. And so then what am I gonna do to not do that? And that's, you know, the things I talked about earlier, which is making sure I have a sponsor at the ready, making sure I have friends I can call anytime, uh, meetings I can jump into whenever I want. Um, and so, and, and again, thank goodness those, those things are there for me and others. 
You can join our conversation today as we focus on addiction and recovery in the pandemic. My guest on Zoom, Vic Vela, who hosts the podcast Back From Broken. I wanted to bring into our conversation Alex Helfer. She's Chief Clinical Officer at Mountainside. This is a national behavioral health network that provides alcohol and drug addiction treatment. And Mountainside has centers in the towns of Canaan and Wilton, Connecticut. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. I wanted you to respond to, to Vic's story, especially what he has been hearing from others in recovery in the pandemic, uh, the difficulties of staying connected, but also maybe some of uh, the bright spots, uh, as he mentioned, uh, looking at techno technology and advances and still in, in a way to stay connected. Yes. Um, so what we have found um, kind of relates exactly to what he was talking about and while virtual and telehealth has been something that we are fortunate to have, there's no real substitution for in-person is what we have found. Um, and our clients are really um, craving that. However, virtual has allowed us to reach more people at the same time. So we have you know, free um, support groups for the public. And instead of having four to eight people show up at a location, we're able to have 32 to 40 show up at, at one night. And um, so, so there's pros and cons, definitely. But I, I do agree that there's not a lot of substitution for the actual connection that in-person allows and getting out of the house. Um, but, but it is a benefit in some aspects that when you're traveling, you can still engage um, if people are traveling. When you're at home, um, you know, there's really no excuse to not hop on either a meeting or a clinical session. Um, you know, you don't have much to put much effort into it. Um, so there, there's pros and cons to both. When we think about uh, the pandemic, more people isolated, uh, more people dealing with uh, stress that they may not have had mm -hmm. before the pandemic, whether it's job loss or lost pay, uh, their family members or friends uh, have fallen sick. That can be a lot for people. I'm wondering what you have seen in our state with uh, the addiction in the pandemic. Has it gotten worse? It has definitely gotten worse. Um, and and Vic uh, spoke to this about opioid deaths, you know, increasing. And I was on Department of Public Health in Connecticut's website, and it just showed from 2019 to 2020, with the same January to July months, overdoses have increased by 20% um, in, in our state. And so the opioid epidemic, um, which is really a pandemic um, at the same time, has, has where we thought we were making progress, you know, in years past, this year has really just set us back. Um, just square one almost um, with a 20% increase, a huge increase um, from the year prior. I also notice uh, at our facility, alcoholism um, rates have increased. We've had a 20% uh, increase of alcoholism being the primary drug of choice that we treat in our detox versus what used to be a 50-50 split with opiates and alcohol. Um, so while opioid deaths are on the rise, alcohol use is also on the rise. When we talk about a mountainside, again, this is a mm -hmm. treatment facility. So when someone's ready to check in for a 28-day program, they can come to mountainside. But what else do you provide and how has that had to shift in the pandemic because of coronavirus? Sure. So we, yeah, we have a detox facility, residential and outpatient um, programs and also recovery coaching. And so we have had to shift just how we 
allow people even in the doors. And so it adds another barrier, um, which Vic was talking about was break, you know, breaking down barriers. It adds, it adds another barrier to people receiving treatment. We have to make sure you're not a risk for bringing COVID into the facility. So we have extra screenings um, that we do. You know, we do a rapid tests right at the door. We have two PCR tests before they're allowed into the regular milieu. Um, and so that in general has made a huge shift. And then people who do test positive, we have to figure out services for them without exposing them to other people, um, you know, as well. And so having someone who's ready to come into treatment and have and come into detox just to find out in two days that they are COVID positive and they have to go quarantine for 14 days or until they have a negative test. Um, is very challenging. So, so we've been able to provide virtual recovery coach support, um, virtual intensive outpatient for those clients, but it's not the same as being in a medically monitored detox facility. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of services we had to change, including going telehealth completely for our outpatient location in Wilton and Canaan, um, and then just amending group sizes as the state has allowed in our residential program. You know, we've had to eliminate some services that um, might increase infection um, and, and it also affects our staff as well. When we think about addiction, again, there's been so much attention on the opioid epidemic because of the number of, mm -hmm. of overdose deaths around our country, including here in Connecticut. But often it seems that alcohol addiction is overlooked. And I'm wondering, Alex, uh, in your perspective as chief clinical officer in Mountainside, are you serving people who maybe they their relationship with alcohol was better managed before the pandemic, but now because of all these added stresses, it's become an issue? Yes, I definitely um, have seen that and, and feel that as we don't have as many statistics yet because the pandemic is still ongoing. I think we're actually going to see even more alcohol related treatment. Um, once things start opening up again and if people go back to the office right now, there's really no um, major consequences for alcohol use um, in terms of like people aren't going to bars and hanging out as much. They're not. Um, so there eliminates the DUI potential that often prompts people to enter treatment. Um, you know, if two, two parents are at home, potentially, then they're not worried about one drinking while watching the children or one sober. Um, and so also showing up to work, it's a lot easier to show up to work at your home after a night of drinking than it is to show up to an office and have people notice. So I think right now people are still able to, um, you know, drink and function as, as society is allowing them to with these stay at home orders. And I think once those are lifted, we're going to see an increase in people uh, realizing that they need treatment for alcohol. Mm. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about how people are navigating addiction and recovery in the pandemic. Addiction affects families and other loved ones, too. There are groups like Naranon to help people who are supporting loved ones struggling with addiction or who are in recovery. Uh, joining us now is a Hamden, Connecticut resident, Maxine Albert, who is part of Naranon. Maxine, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. I was asking Alex about how services, treatment services and programs have changed in the pandemic, but I'm wondering from your perspective as an organization and a member helping uh, those um, people who need support because there might be someone in their family or close friend that's struggling, um, how have you been able to still keep that connection going in the pandemic? 
Well, similar to what both Vic and Alex were talking about, um, I just wanted to say I'm not any kind of a professional. I'm just a member of uh, Naranon Family Groups. But what we have been seeing is that it's very difficult because we also like being live. We like being able to give hugs, as Vic was talking about, being able to comfort family members when they come in, letting them know they're not alone. And it's very difficult to do on the virtual uh, scene. However, I have to really say that for some bizarre reason, um, the Naranon family group seemed to have grown since the pandemic, there is uh, several meetings that because people don't have to drive, they're able to just log on any time of the day. Naranon is a worldwide fellowship. We're international, so we have so we have virtual meetings all over the world. People can log on to a meeting any time of the day in any part of the world. So they can find that recovery, <clears throat> excuse me, they can find that recovery and the comfort from family members online. However, it's still not the same thing as in person, but there are people that are finding us because of the pandemic, which is absolutely crazy. Tell me why you joined Naranon, Maxine. Um, well, I thought I came in because the person that I was involved with was uh, actively using drugs. What I found out when I came in here was that uh, many of my relationships were all affected by the disease of addiction. Coming in here, I thought I was coming in here to help the addict. And what Naranon does is it helps the family member, family, and we're family and friends. It doesn't just have to be a family member. Um, but we, we're here to help ourselves deal with uh, loving an addict and knowing that we are totally powerless over helping them, that we cannot get the addict clean until the addict is ready to get clean. That's what they're, that's the only way that can help them. They have to do it themselves. So we're here to help ourselves. We learn how to either live with addiction or deal with the consequences of their actions and not being able to fix them. We have to keep, we keep the focus on ourselves and there's nothing that we can do to help them. Mm -hmm. So I came in here because of somebody I loved was an active addict. I stay because the recovery process is all about me today. When we think about support, is the general feeling that families and loved ones of someone who's struggling with addiction, that they are overlooked uh, from society, Maxine? Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, the focus is how do we get the addict help? Excuse me one second. Sorry, I forgot to disconnect my phone. Um, how do we get the addict help? And the bottom line is there's nothing that we can do, but how do we help ourselves? And there's so many of our readings in our literature, they talk about um, that we're just as crazy as the addict. That we're, I'm so sorry, nobody's That's here. Okay. <laughs> so that we are just as crazy as the addict. And 
because we're trying to fix and help and take care of somebody else, but we can't. And they do say, I don't know the statistics because it's just not my thing, but they say for every addict, four people in the family are affected. But, you know, I'm sure it's way more than that. And I'm sure Alex could probably give you those statistics. However, what we are here to do is to let people know they're not alone. They're, you know, the, this disease is filled with guilt and shame, not just for the addict, but for the family members. We're like, why is that happening? What could we have done? What are people thinking that we couldn't fix the addict? Um, why did we allow that when people that are not affected by the disease don't understand that there's nothing that we can do? And until you're affected by this disease and come into or be familiar with the 12 step program, you know, you think, oh, we can fix this and we can't. Alex, I wanted to get your perspective on that support for family members and other loved ones. I agree with I agree with Maxine, excuse me, um, that it is often a secondary um, to someone's to the what we call the identified patient or the client's treatment. Um, addiction is is known to be a family disease, and it impacts the family greatly um, prior to someone getting treatment. And as Maxine was saying, the priority is always getting that person into treatment. And then, what is the family left with? You know, the family um, has been so concerned about that one person in their family that oftentimes there's there's things that they've missed working on themselves. And so we we encourage um, family sessions in our in our clinics and also uh, we have free family support groups and especially one for spouses and loved ones Um, and we encourage people to get their own therapist as well to that's not a a singular process it's a parallel process the family and the client getting their own help and then coming together Alex, it's a a stressful time for everyone when families are stuck at home and they don't have the space that they might have had um, before the pandemic. And so how is this exacerbated when you have a loved one that is struggling with addiction and you're all together all the time? Have you seen that be an issue? I have seen it actually help people get to treatment faster. Um, That's good. be parents mostly, um, or even spouses, um, are much quicker to say you have a problem. Um, you need to get help because the tolerance level is just so much lower. You can't really turn a blind eye when you when you're with them 24 hours a day. Uh, Vic Vela, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation because you are someone in recovery. Uh, I didn't ask you earlier about um, the impact on your family. How are they doing? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, first of all, everything that Maxine said is is right, and thank God for groups like uh, Nalanon or Alanon or other other family support groups. Because I, I always put it this way: um, it's that obviously the addiction was tough on me. You know, I, I it was terrible, but what I put my family through was so much worse in, in so many ways. Like my mom and dad, those sleepless nights where they didn't know if they were going to get a phone call at two in the morning from the morgue or a police officer. That's, that's heck, you know, living through that is just awful. So, uh, so thank goodness there are support groups for family members because again, we can't get help unless we're, we're willing and able to get help. Um, But to answer your question, uh, they, (laughs) 
they're so proud of me and I'm, I love them. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the love and support that they have, have given me over the last six years and, and, and well, you know, 43 years. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, and, you know, that's the one thing is that even though we can't really fix someone with, unless they're willing to get help, but we can tell them that, that we love them you can call and say, I'm, I'm here for you whenever you need something. I'm just letting you know, I love you. And we will remember that when we're ready, when we're, when we're ready to ask for help, we're going to remember all those times when people said, I love you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to come back after a short break. And if you are in the recovery community, we want to hear from you too. Join us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We're talking about addiction and recovery in the pandemic with my guests on Zoom, Vic Vela, the host of Back From Broken, a podcast about recovery and comeback stories from Colorado Public Radio. Alex Helfer is here, Chief Clinical Officer at Mountainside, a treatment facility with centers in Canaan and Wilton, Connecticut, and Maxine Albert, a member of Naranon Family Groups. She lives in Hamden, Connecticut. Maxine, the phone was ringing earlier, but we were talking you were talking about newcomers and i'm wondering when people reach out to you how do they find you and what do you want them to know especially as this pandemic continues well they don't necessarily find me we have uh websites um and our world website uh has links to all the groups all over the world so they can just click on and they can find normally a regular meeting, but now they'll find the virtual meeting link so that they can come on. We used to go through, uh, way before a website, we used to go through InfoLine through 211. But we also do a lot of speaking at different uh, rehabs, which unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we cannot do it now because as Alex was saying, they're so limited with people coming in. I have reached out to some of the rehabs that we usually speak at, but right now they're not even doing anything virtually. So we try to carry the message of hope and that there is hope for the families by speaking out to the families. But we do do, uh, well, before pandemic, we used to do health fairs. Uh, we have a big community of from Narcotics Anonymous in Connecticut, at least, that's uh, very embracing to Naranon. And they're always welcoming us to anything that they're involved in. And so we're able to carry the message of recovery there as well. Um, but today, I would just say it's probably based all on uh, website. That's how people find us. They probably go on the link to find out how to get help for the addict. And Fortunately, there's a way to divert them to get help for themselves. So that's that's the most important thing is how to get help for ourselves. And there's something that Vic said that it struck me. We are very cognizant of saying to the addicts, you know, we love you. We're here for you. When you're ready to get support, we'll help you. But until then, there's nothing more we can do. 
And we do try to remember to tell people that we do love them because that's important to know, to let them know that. We just have a few minutes left. I wanted to go back to Alex Helfer from Mountainside. When we talk about recovery, relapse is part of that journey. Can you talk about how your clients navigate that and how you provide support to families? Um, sure, definitely relapse is unfortunately part of the journey um, and it doesn't have to be, but it often is. And so we try to educate families on that as much as possible when we are working with them without also um, disheartening them, especially if it's someone's first time in treatment. Um, but often we, you know, we do see people coming in and out of treatment facilities. Um, and I don't know at this time how much the pandemic will, will impact that. However, I am also concerned that after the pandemic, we may see, or even during the pandemic, we may see people who have had many years of sobriety um, relapsing more um, than, than normal um, due to the added stresses of, of the pandemic and just the isolation itself. Um, so that is a concern. Uh, Vic Vela, I wanted to ask you, for someone who may be listening, who either is struggling with addiction or there's someone that they love uh, that's struggling, what would you tell them? Uh, never give up. Don't give up on yourself. You know, um, it took me a very long time. You know, people say you're doing so well and congratulations and, and that's wonderful. Um, but it took me a long time. <laughs> I, I didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to get sober. No, it was a lot of pain and a lot of suffering for a long time. And so I get it. Um, and, and boy, I'm just, when you do make that realization that you, you, that you can't, you know, that you've become, your life has become unmanageable because of drugs and alcohol and that road to recovery begins, you know, your life can change in ways that you can't even imagine right now. I'm telling you, yeah, take everything one day at a time, but understand that there is hope and that there is uh, a, a possibility for a spiritual awakening. And when that happens, it is a beautiful feeling. And it's unlike anything else that I could ever describe, um, like a child being born, right? Or, or something, and, and in many ways we are reborn. When, when we when we start over because I'm learning how to behave in the real world without drugs. So in, in many ways, I'm kind of a kindergartner still, right? Just learning right from wrong. Um, but I, I'm telling you, don't beat yourself up. We all are broken from time to time. We all need help from time to time. Um, trust me, if, if you have a sad story, I will match you mine or anyone else's. There's people who have recovered who have been in prison, people who have uh, taken the lives of others, right? You know, if you are still above the ground, you got a chance. You talk about everyone uh, being broken in some way or the other, and I thought that was so powerful listening to your podcast, Vic, called back from broken, uh, letting people talk about the recovery, their comeback stories. And I really appreciate your time today here on Where We Live, Vic. Hey, thank you. And, and thanks to Maxine and, uh, and Alex for, for your contributions. Uh, you guys are terrific. Thank you for what you guys do. 
That's Vic Vello from Colorado Public Radio. Also with us today on Where We Live was Alex Helford, Chief Clinical Officer at Mountainside, and Maxine Albert, a member of Naranon Family Groups. Alex and Maxine, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. It's an important topic to, to keep discussing. And we'll have some links on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>